We're in the first week of Advent, and so we're starting a brand new series called Foretold and Fulfilled. Um, We want to look at uh, portions of the Old Testament and the prophetic voices that spoke in anticipation of the coming of Jesus, because that's what Advent means. Advent means coming. It means this, this season of waiting and anticipation. It even has these connotations of, of letting go what's in the past and, and then looking forward and being un, unencumbered to, to be a part of what God is, is doing. Uh, specifically, we want to look at those Old Testament prophecies and see how they play out in Jesus' birth narrative and in his ministry. So before we get started, I do want to tell you I'm actually horrible at Christmas stuff. Uh, it's not because I'm a Scrooge. It's just because when I, when I think of Advent, it's so rich in meaning. And, but when you look at our culture, Christmas is really folksy and kitschy and, and really different from Advent, which is a lot of times around uh, our church community, you'll hear us talk about Advent even more than Christmas time. Um, and again, it's not because we're just bah, humbing, uh, bah humbugging everything. I think that's a made up word, but we're going to go with it. Um, my guess is, is that that's a lot of us want the charming like baby talk and Christmas presents and celebrate. I love that stuff. But there's a, there's a somberness, a sobriety about Advent that I feel. I feel that, like it's less about a nine pound, six, six ounce baby bouncing boy at Christmas time and, and more about like this undercover adventure. It's more like Die Hard, which is the best Christmas movie ever, by the way. But it's, it's more about like this, 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 you know, Navy SEAL behind enemy lines being dropped off in the cover of night to undo, you know, bad things and topple kingdoms. That's more of what the birth of Jesus is really about when you look at it. It's like some kind of like CIA movie or something like that. And at the same time, there's this, there's this kind of punch in the gut feeling that you get because when, when we deal with Jesus coming, we have to deal with the human condition and, and all the things we want to sweep under the rug and, and not talk about. That actually, in Advent, that actually gets brought to the forefront. And so if you're, if you're like me and like Christmas is exciting, but you also feel this like maybe grief or mourning mixed in there and you're not sure why it's a mixed bag and you can't put your finger on it, you're in a good place. And we can, we can navigate having all of those feelings and all those emotions concurrently together. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, who wrote just a masterful book on Advent, and several of her teachings and, 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 and writings, wrote this. She says, Advent begins, well, that, the, the title of the, of the article, Advent begins where human potential ends. She says this, the biblical story is rigorously unsentimental. It doesn't offer optimism. It doesn't offer positive thinking. It looks deeply into human history, human folly, human pain, and plain old human disappointment. The Advent season, properly understood, is designed to help us understand and strengthen us for life in the real world where there are malignant forces actively working against human well-being and the divine purposes of God. This is a world in which no one seems to know what to do about the catastrophic famine in parts of the world. This is a world in which the promise of freedom and democracy in other places is shifting before the eyes of the world into oppression and autocracy. This is a world in which our very best intentions turn against us. And I love this line. Advent always begins 
in the dark. But there is a but, and we find it revealed in the story that the scriptures tell. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the scripture story today and over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. We want to look at the Old Testament groaning and anticipation, and we want to look at the New Testament fulfillment and how that impacts us today in our everyday lives, okay? So one book that I just recently started reading that really probes this perspective of depravity and just the human condition without any frills is called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. In it, he identifies a significant problem we all face in our cultural moment that we're in. Everything has been ordered to tell you that you belong to yourself and everything is for you and about you. I mean, you could drive up to the fast food burger place and have it your way, right? That is what we've been told our whole lives. Yet, uh, if we believe that we belong only to ourselves and we have no other responsibility, we're free to do what we want for whatever we want with whomever we want, we have to understand that there are repercussions to that. So here's what he says. And I have two long quotes, but I think they're just phenomenal to get at what we're talking about. He says this, if I am my own and belong to myself, the first and most significant implication is that I am wholly responsible for my life. This is both an exhilarating and terrifying thought. And it's not just that I am responsible for my personal survival, for food and shelter and so on. I also need a reason to live. I need a purpose and direction. I need some way to know when I am failing at life and when I am succeeding, which I, when I am living ethically and when I am not. I must have some way of determining on my deathbed that I lived a good, full life. Even when we discover our true self or create our own identity, we still need some kind of external validation, and so we must express ourselves, a process called expressive individualism. We are our own and belong to ourselves, but identity always requires the acknowledgement of other people. There's a tension here, and you can find it all over our culture, On one hand, there is a pull of autonomy. I am my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. But on the other hand, there is a pull for recognition that is inherently a part of identity. People must acknowledge me for who I am and see me me how I desire to be seen. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression. So that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. I mean, what do you say? That's pretty good. To, to be recognized is to draw the gaze and the attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention. And no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. How can we cope with such fierce competition? And we're so inundated over the, uh, uh, with, with this message that you belong to yourself and you need to create your own, uh, own identity and it's up to you for whatever you want to do. In, in fact, I remember the, the Marvel film, uh, 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 gosh, I just blanked on it. Um, there was a Marvel film last summer. I'm going to think about it as I, as I, as I talk. But the, in the trailer, the, in the film, the, the uh, protagonist was like, I have to strike out on my own. I have to find out who I am. I have to find out where life is taking me and what I have to offer. Like you just find all of these, um, uh, oh, it was the Black Widow film. It was like the trailer, just the, the, the voiceover on that was like, I was like, 
this is really interesting that this is her story. It's her story of finding herself, her own journey, going back to where she came from to discover herself for herself. It's just so fascinating. And that's expressive individualism. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I remember uh, my, one of my kids was carrying around um, like the phone because it was playing Spotify. He was only able to go forwards and backwards, but he really liked the song at the time, Old Town Road. And there's a line in it that, that says, can't nobody tell me nothing. And he would go around and just sing that. Can't nobody tell me nothing, like on loop. And I, I heard him do it, you know, and it's kind of like when you're busy and your kids are doing something and it's like, well, nobody's bleeding, so it's okay, it's fine. But I, so I kind of tuned him out. But then when he kept saying that, I, I remember going, Wait, that's a terrible thing to sing. That's a terrible thing for to have as an earworm and to like let it seep down into. I'm like, and it's got, not because I'm like a drill sergeant dad or anything, and it's like, oh, you can't, you know, I'm gonna tell you some things. It's like this isn't how life works. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Well, that doesn't work at all for anybody ever at any time in history. But we can sing to it and pretend like, well, yeah, I'm just on my own. I get to create my own identity. I get to discover my own journey and my own path and my own meeting and my own morals. So I said, give me the phone. We're shutting that off. That was the moral of that story. These, these beliefs have consequences, whether it's a, a movie trailer or a song. It's in our culture everywhere. In fact, Alan Noble continues on. He says this, Social media companies are forced to contract small armies of content moderators. That would be a dad and a mom, like in a family, but they have to like outsource it because adults are figuring out we can do what we want, right? Uh, They have to hire small armies of content moderators to check each flagged item and judge it according to the evolving community standards of the platform. That means men and women spend hours a a day at a cubicle staring at images of rape, murder, child abuse, animal abuse, torture, terrorism, and so on. To treat the trauma inflicted on their employees by the technique of social media moderation, the contracted companies introduce coping techniques, counseling, yoga, wellness breaks, and so on. These methods were almost certainly chosen with great care and great legal counsel for their ability to reduce anxiety and liability in the workplace with as little cost as possible. The reports about these contracted moderation companies are grim. In one investigation, The Verge found that employees at a Facebook moderation office in Phoenix, Arizona, were developing drug habits to cope. They turned to dark humor. They suffered panic attacks. They had sex with each other as a form of trauma bonding. All the while, social media companies keep these employees at arm's length by hiring them as contractors, not full-time employees. Sharing photos online aids us in defining and expressing our identity and interpreting meaningful moments in our lives. But it comes at a cost of thousands of people's exposure to the worst that humans have thought and said and done. The belief that we are our own and that we have no responsibility to anyone else has consequences. It may be removed far from us as far as Phoenix is from Manhattan, Kansas, But surely, someone is absorbing the cost of that collective trauma and that grief. Our ease with these social media tools creates situations which others are dehumanized and suffer because of our collective self-expression. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at two scriptures from the Old Testament that push back against this idea 
that we belong to ourselves, that we're our own, and we don't have responsibility to look after one another, okay? What we find in Genesis 49 in this particular chapter is the soon-to-be death of the beloved Jacob, one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His sons are gathered around him to hear his final words and see him pass on the traditional fatherly blessing. One by one, each receives words of affirmation and prediction. They are a prophecy of the direction of each tribe, the collection of families that will expand from each son's lineage and form the nation of Israel. Jacob sets his attention on his fourth oldest son, Judah, and says this. I'm in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you, which is a play on words because Judah means praise. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah, You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So what we immediately see, that's a great contrast to our contemporary culture, is that an entire group of people are being shaped by a blessing from the patriarch. This blessing doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't get shouted into a void. In other words, individuals and families who are a part of the tribe of Judah, as well as other tribes of Israel, have a shared identity that is bestowed upon them, not simply made up by by each person. To be a part of this community is to be formed by the shared identity that it has been prophetically declared over them as the word of their God. Their choice is to simply live under it or reject it, but never to alter it. So that's point one, is that this expressive individualism didn't exist in these ancient cultures. You got to either be a part of the nation and a part of that blessing, or you spurned it. That was your choice. You never got to create your own, though. So that's point one. The second point about this has to do with the prophecy itself. It's an Advent prophecy. I don't know if you caught that. I don't know if you, maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is an Advent prophecy because it's foretelling a future king coming. It focuses on a ruler that will come from Judah's lineage. The ruler who we know and realize is Jesus is said to have lion-like qualities and he will rule over not just Judah or Israel but over all the other nations of the world. Uh, And so indeed, you can go to the book of Revelation and Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah and it's actually playing on this specific and particular prophecy. Okay, so the second one, the second scripture I want us to look at today is another prophecy from the second book of Samuel. Here we see King David, who, by the way, is part of the tribe of Judah. And as he has conquered all his enemies and brought peace to his nation, he looks out at all that he had accomplished, all that God had graced him with. And as he does so, he finds an overwhelming desire to build for God a great temple so God's presence can dwell there and he can be worshiped. But the prophet Nathan delivers a message to David saying that he won't be allowed to do that. But as an act of grace, God will preserve David's lineage forever in Israel. 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So so God says to David, you want to build me a house, but I have a better deal for you. I'm actually going to build you a house And he continues, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up 
your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So two things here. First, this may not seem super important to us in the modern era, but to the the ancient Near East, the ancient world, having a preserved lineage was a big deal, okay? It represented strength and vigor to have your name or your house endure multiple generations. When an enemy army conquered a land, they often sought to snuff out the king's line by killing all of the males in the household so that that line would be cut off and no one could come back for retribution. So when God guarantees to David that his house will endure forever, it's a huge relief to David. He can rest in the fact that God promises that his line will carry on into the future. And it's a promise of prosperity that with each generation, there would be things passed down to make each successive generation stronger, at least in theory, because if you know the houses of Israel, they put Game of Thrones to shame. It's real crazy stuff, actually. Second, this is known as the Davidic covenant. And while David most likely thought in terms of physical offspring to carry on his name, Jesus, who is also known as the son of David, is the full realization of this promise who eternally rules as the rightful king and savior of the world. So these two scriptures find expression an important place in the New Testament, specifically in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels. The birth narratives of Jesus are kicked off by an intentional recording of his family line to trace back why he has come from uh, and as he steps into human existence. It's a fantastic thing to think of the eternal and unmade God stepping into human history in the form of a baby who has relatives you can trace through his family tree. And as we look at that, there are some interesting things the author is trying to communicate. So I'm going to abbreviate all the begats. You're welcome. Partly because of time and partly because I just can't pronounce them all, okay? So yeah, if I mispronounce any, yes, just this is my acknowledgement that you're right. So there we go. Um, Let's look at Matthew chapter one, verse one. And I wanna read through this abbreviated genealogy of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes on to Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Goes on that Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the was the father of Shenaltiel. See, I knew there was one. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So what I want you to see is that Matthew draws our attention to three sets of 14 names. Now, the Old Testament and New Testament were written really without punctuation. So there's a lot stylistically that the writers do to draw our attention and to, to give meaning to that text. The sets of 14 have a royal or a kingly designation. And so when, you're, when the readers would be seeing three sets of 14 names, an exclamation point would, would be sent out for their understanding. We're talking about a kingly line. This is a kingly lineage that we're looking at, okay? And so he locates Jesus in a family line that's both very Jewish, means that it comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and very much a part of the royal line of David that has been preserved for all those years. 
So as, as I've alluded to, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies from Jacob and from Nathan that both point to a ruler who will come from the line of Abraham and sit on David's throne forever to rule over the nations. Okay, so let's talk just briefly about how this affects us today. Point one that I wanna make is that inclusion is God's choice. It's all of grace. To be included in Judah's family and to live with the prophecy shaping your destiny, it's totally up to God. And we're ultimately included in God's family because of his kindness, not because of anything that we deserve. Trimper Longman in his commentary on Genesis says this, it appears that God does not choose based on human entitlement or custom. It means it doesn't matter your pedigree, what college degree you have, how much money you have in the bank, who your, who, who your family line is or name is, any of that stuff. To actually be created and placed in a family at a certain point in history is all God's grace. Ancient Semitic ideas gave preference to the firstborn, but God does not work according to these expectations. On what basis does he choose? Grace. There's nothing about Bible characters that determines this choice, only God. What does that mean for us? As we think about our own status before God, we have to recognize that there is nothing in us that led to God's choice. We're not smarter, bigger, more spiritually sensitive, stronger than others. We can thank only God. For this reason, there is no boasting. In fact, in the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 said that, that we were saved not by good works, but by God's grace in order to do God's work. That we are God's poema, his, his masterpiece. That, that it's by his grace that we are saved. And, and it takes out all points of pride that I've done this on my own or I've deserved this or people owe this to me. It's all of grace and it's all of God. All we do is give our yes. We just give our surrender in our heart to follow Jesus, okay? So point one, inclusion is God's choice. Two, Jesus is no ordinary king. What I mean by that is that while most other kings prized their pure bloodlines and even created mythology to claim they had been uh, descended by Zeus, that was Caesar had, 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 had this mythology that he was a god because he was a ruler Give, uh, 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 an offspring of Zeus himself. So they had all this mythology about these world rulers and leaders. And in the midst of that, the genealogy of Jesus embraces every knot in his family tree. Take a look at me with uh, at four specific parts, parts that I originally removed, but I want to look at specifically. Matthew 1 again. It says, Judah, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus called the Messiah. So there are five women named in Jesus' lineage. There aren't other lineages that that claim women or, or have this matriarchal input. It's all about the men carrying on the family line. And in the lineage of King Jesus, he not only includes five women, but these are women that would be seen as having a bad background or carrying baggage into Jesus' limit. It's the very kind of people you would want to cut out to preserve the purity of the bloodline. And the bloodline of Jesus says, no, we're actually going to include them and we're going to tell their story. If you don't know who these women are, Tamar was twice widowed and was spurned by her father-in-law, Judah, who should have provided for her under the Mosaic law. Instead, he mistook her for a prostitute and ended up taking her as his own wife. 
Rahab was a prostitute who hid the Israelite spies in Jericho and saved their lives. Ruth was a Canaanite, a foreigner to the nation of Israel, who traveled with her mother-in-law after her husband died. Uriah's wife was Bathsheba, who David impregnated after using his kingly power to pressure her into sleeping with him. And then he had Uriah, her husband, killed to cover up his tracks. And Mary was the recipient of an angelic visitation, announcing the unplanned pregnancy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some extra-biblical tradition holds that this created a stigma for her because she was accused of sleeping with a Roman centurion, that Jesus was actually illegitimate altogether. So with each of these women, we have seen negative, we, uh, uh, the, the people at the time who would write this and not think twice about like bolstering Jesus' claim to the throne, they, they would have excluded because they would have seen these women as having unredeemable baggage. But Jesus folds each of them into his family line, restores their dignity, and embraces each as his matriarch. What I want you to know is there's no one who's too far gone. There's no one whose story is too messed up to be included in God's family. There's no one who's too far outside of God's reach for him to embrace them and bring them back in. So my first point, inclusion is God's choice. Second, Jesus is no ordinary king. And third, God has a purpose for you in your family. There's a reason that you live in your family, that you're connected to the people that you are. Maybe not everything lines up perfectly with God's plan. And yeah, you know, if you're a teenager, your mom might be a little cringe. If you're a bit older, your dad still may tell terrible dad jokes, and that's never going away. I love, there's actually like, there's apps for dad jokes, and I will just, instead of like time out for my kids, sometimes I will just sit them down. You get a lecture or some dad jokes, what do you want? They're like, ah, give me the dad jokes. All right, let's do this. Let's get this over with. Yeah, so. You may be a parent and just wonder, like, when, is, when are my kids going to, when's it going to click for them? They just seem to not get it. But there's a reason that you're a part of your family. You might be tempted to forge your own way to create your own family identity apart from it but you would be missing out on a greater plan that God has in mind. I really do believe this. We often measure in months or years, and God measures in generations. His purposes for a family is way, way longer than our short attention span that wants immediate results. So my invitation to you is to dig in and be rooted in the family location God has placed in you. And be patient as God works out his purpose in you and through you and through your family line. And you can maybe even ask yourself, what are the great values that my family holds dear? Are there things like hospitality or compassion or humility or loyalty that are our family values? Lean into that and embrace that as a positive family culture. And I say that not to cover up or bypass anything that's unhealthy or unsafe. It may be that the healthiest thing that you've done for your family is to draw real clear boundaries and to stick with those. But I would say that that even creates a better, better family culture and passes something on to the next generation that's gonna be better than what you live through, okay? So even in that, there's some kind of redemptive act, maybe, that will have some lasting impact on future generations. So with that, That's it. I wanted to keep it brief today and just really introduce 
Advent and celebrate that. Uh, with that, I want to give you a sim- simple exercise that as we think about Jesus' lineage, as we prepare our hearts for Advent, um, that you can look at your own family dynamics. I'm going to have the worship team come up as we do that. Um, you can ask yourself these questions. How do you see God working to redeem the knots in your family tree? And how can you be a part of creating a healthy family culture? Why don't you stand with me? How do you see God working in your family to redeem the knots, to redeem all the things that you don't talk about, all the, the crazy uncles that have been forgotten, all, the, all the, the avoidance things that we do, like not showing up for Thanksgiving dinner, or, you know, pro, like being there for an hour on Christmas. Like what is it that we do that God is wanting to put his finger on and actually bring redemption? And how can we be agents of that in the midst of our family, okay? Why don't you, um, let's bow our heads. Let's just wait on, on God for a moment. Is the thing about Jesus being born after all those centuries of supposed silence from God is that we understand God's not in a hurry. It may not be that something changes this holiday season in your family, but it may be that you're planting seeds for a future harvest. So what is it that God is doing? What is it that he is inviting you into to leave your family in a better place? Jesus, we acknowledge our great need and we acknowledge you as our great hope. So God, being a part and located in a family is challenging for all of us. As healthy or as dysfunctional as it is, we all face challenges. So God, we invite you in in a greater way into our lives this Advent season to work in us to work in our families, to bring redemption and reconciliation, God. We pray for all those prodigals that have gone their own way. We pray for ourselves as we've done that too. And God, we believe you for restoration. You bring beauty out of broken things, God. And so we ask that you would do that in this season that you would bring health out of dysfunction. You would bring hope out of despair. And you would bring light in the midst of all the darkness that we see, not just in our families, but all around the world, God. Jesus, again, we love you. We're so grateful for Advent, for your coming. And so prepare us, prepare our hearts in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.